was to raise the profile of the the Christian life and service on campus by naming uh, a person to the senior staff who would would serve alongside him as as vice president for Christian life and service. Take us through. I want to, uh, and and that is, I think, an interesting point of conversation. You mentioned uh, you, and you're very careful to use the word amicably agreed. Yes. Um, Tell us, in sort of layman's terms, what sort of, if any, there may not be any, what sort of uh, practical sort of policy differences uh, can you point to that, okay, this was, this is something that tangibly changed when we had this official relationship and now when we have this amicably unofficial relationship? Right. That's, that's a great question, Shane. Uh, originally, the relationship that all of the Baptist schools had with the North Carolina Baptist State Convention was we received... Uh, approximately $1 million in undesignated funds okay. uh, as a part of the annual budget of the university. And in turn, the North Carolina Baptist State Convention at their annual meeting, they approved the trustee slate of Gardner-Webb University and the other Baptist schools. Yeah. Uh, there were some stipulations there in the sense that they all had to be members of cooperating North Carolina Baptist churches and uh, in order to be nominated and obviously in order to be approved. Um, part of the, the concern of the five Baptist colleges is we have some strong uh, trustees who are outside of North Carolina, who are strong Christians but not, might not be Baptist and aren't able to serve on our board of trustees. So uh, the, the North Carolina Baptist State Convention, uh, led by Milton Hollyfield, he was very uh, a very important figure in terms of working out this agreement with the five Baptist colleges, along with the five Baptist college presidencies. And when I say presidents, presidents of the five Baptist colleges, I'm talking about Gardner-Webb, of course, mm-hmm. Wingate, Mars Hill, Chawan, and Campbell. Meredith and Wake Forest had already distanced themselves from the North Carolina Baptist State Convention. So the presidents of the five schools and the leadership of the convention met together to talk about how can we continue to relate to one another and and still have uh, a partnership in higher education and ministry and allow the convention to uh, still support the schools and the schools still support the convention, but not in the same way that we're doing it right now. And right. that's that's the reason I mentioned the word amicable, because it was very much a, a, a partnership and working together to decide this. And so what changed is, rather than the million-dollar undesignated funding, money was put into a scholarship fund hmm. that would directly go to students who were attending one of the five Baptist colleges and universities. Right. And in turn, since the institutions were giving up that undesignated money, uh, the institutions were given the opportunity in a phasing out plan to elect their own trustees. So now uh, the board of Gardner-Webb University is is fully self-perpetuating uh, where they elect their own trustees. So in that sense, it's really uh, had nothing to do with policy differences so much as it had to do with wanting autonomy. Absolutely. Okay. Right. And and still benefiting students there, and, and that's a program that uh, students at Gardner-Webb do benefit from. Right. I want to sort of then backtrack into uh, a little bit about you and your biography. Where okay. are you from? I'm from Mount Airy, North Carolina, Mayberry. Mayberry. <laughs> so you're a, you're Andy of Mayberry. Absolutely. No, actually, I'm Opie of Mayberry. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get your hair cut at Floyd's Barbershop? <laughs> no, but. Uh, my my grandfather did. Yeah. <laughs> so you're from Mount Airy, and uh, now what? Uh, tell us about your uh, your family life. What uh, your mom and dad and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, my father is a bivocational pastor. Now, 
this is almost akin, and, and Shane, I'm just going to go ahead and, and say it. This is almost akin to someone using the terminology Christian lawyer, since I know you're going to law school. <laughs> uh, I apologize for offending the lawyers out there. Why, whatever the do you mean? <laughs> uh, but my dad is a bivocational pastor, and his other vocation is a wholesale car dealer. <laughs> and so most people don't think that those two things go very well together. But uh, just like there are many fine Christian lawyers out there, uh, my dad is an honest Christian wholesale car dealer who also is a bivocational pastor. And um, so I, I grew up in a strong Christian home. Uh, my mother did not work outside the home. But if anyone knows anything about wholesale car dealers, um, there's a lot of running back and forth that mm -hmm. has to be done, you know, whether it's taking a car to detail or oil and filter change before you take it to the sale or before you sell it to, you know, someone in the community. And so my mom was the person who, you know, would pick up my dad when he said, I'm going to be dropping off the car here. And uh, so it was neat to see them sort of working together, not only in ministry, obviously, but also working together with dad's other vocation. And um, I, I've been very blessed growing up in a Christian home. I have an older brother who is a school teacher uh, in Mount Airy and a younger brother who is um, he's just come out of full time as a chaplain in the Navy oh. and is in the reserves now. Uh, he's got two young kids and felt like that God was calling him to be more present as a, as a dad. So he went in, uh, and changed to the reserves. And uh, he's also teaching fourth grade math at uh, an elementary school in Boonville, uh, North Carolina. So family is very involved in education. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So now how in the world uh, from Mount Airy, you came uh, the better part of about three hours or, or close to it to come down to college. How did you discover Gardner-Webb? How did you end up coming to Gardner-Webb as a student? I actually had never heard of Gardner-Webb. It's a I common had, narrative. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but I had a guidance counselor who uh, – there was there was someone who had been the student government president at my high school who was four years older than, than me. Uh, didn't know him well, but he had come to Gardner-Webb and had had a good experience. And she saw a lot of similarities in our personalities, in our family backgrounds, and uh, she encouraged me to look at Gardner-Webb. Uh, I was also looking at two – state schools, um, not larger state universities, but smaller state universities, because I felt like that I would be more compatible with a, a smaller school. Um, and and I, I visited Gardner-Webb, and many of the listeners, I'm sure out there, will know the name Randy Kilby. Mm -hmm. uh, Randy Kilby was the director of admissions, and he actually gave me my tour that day. And I still remember him uh, walking on that tour with a cone of ice cream uh, in his hand uh, as he told all the stories about his experience at Gardner-Webb and gave me the, the million-dollar tour here. And uh, I kid you not, my mom and dad paid my deposit that day. It's the first time I'd ever set foot on the campus. And I had applied but and had been accepted, and that day— Paid my I'm guessing uh, your dad appreciated a good sales, a good salesman. Absolutely, and absolutely. He certainly saw that in Randy. Yeah. No question about that. So you then uh, you come off to college, and when you when you come to Gardner, what what did you imagine? And obviously, as you know, working with students, this this vision of your future can sort of change from time to time. But what was your initial plan when you set sail to college uh, that first fall semester? What did you think you would major in? What did you think you would do with your life? All right. Well, first of all, I really didn't know what to expect because I'm a first-generation college student. Okay. And, um, you know, fast-forwarding a little bit, when I walked across that stage four years later, I, I felt like I was getting my diploma for every member of my family yeah. who had, had made it possible 
uh, and who had supported me and encouraged me and prayed for me through that whole process. Um, I, I received some advice, honestly, until a few weeks before I came to Gardner-Webb. I, I had no idea what I was going to major in. And I know that's a common story now, but no one had ever talked to me about undecided or undeclared majors, so I, I had no clue what that was. Uh, but someone gave me some advice uh, th- that was simply this, major in something you love. And my passion had always been music growing up mm-hmm. and, you know, from an academic perspective. And so I I indicated during my orientation time that I wanted to, to be a music major. And I took the, the pretest that they give to determine if you go into basic theory or theory one. And I was able to go straight into theory one and not have to take basic theory and um, just truly loved that experience. I majored in music education and I'm one of those uh, persons who never changed my major uh, hmm. during my four-year college experience. I'm also one of those few individuals who had a wonderful student teaching experience, uh, actually with, with Diane Brooks. Uh, Diane and Ken Brooks are very well known in, in Cleveland County in the Gardner-Webb community. Ken taught for years, uh, directing an excellent chamber choir at Crest High School until his retirement. And Diane actually was the feeder uh, choral teacher at the middle school, at mm-hmm. Crest Middle School. And uh, they were just, you know, a dynamic team. And um, I believe built such a quality choral program at Garden Web. Well, Diane was my student teacher supervisor. And um, I, I had a wonderful student teaching experience, oddly enough, at Ellenborough Elementary School, <laughs> which was a K through eight school yeah. at that time. Yeah. And, uh, but it was during that time, even though I had a great student teaching experience, that I felt like that's that's really not what God wanted me to do the rest of my life, and um, was given the opportunity after I graduated to be assistant to the president here at Gardner Webb, and um, and who was the president? Then? The president was Chris White at that yeah. time, and I know assistant to the president sounds like a glamorous title, and in no way do I want to demean uh, that title. I was going to say Scoot Dixon might be listening. So, no, it was very, very different from Scoot Dixon's uh, uh, position. You know, I was fresh out of college, a 22-year-old, and this was very much an entry-level position. You know, honestly, I, I, I would sort of look at it very similar to um, uh, almost like a, a GA-type position yeah. except full-time or an internship full-time because uh, Dr. White promised me that in that position – I, I would get the equivalency of a graduate education in terms of learning sort of the overview uh, and the big picture of university life where, where I realized that during my student experience, as, as you are very much aware, you know, what what we see and what we know is just a small piece of what it takes to operate a, a university like Gardner-Webb. Mm-hmm. And it was during that time that God clarified his call on my life you know, to ministry first and foremost of all. But then secondly, I felt like that calling was to Christian higher education. And did that happen as a result of working at Gardner-Webb? So if I understood you correctly, during the student teaching, you think, well, this is good, but this is not for me in the long term. And then did you sort of accept that position with the mindset that it would be kind of a stopgap thing and you would figure yourself out while you were doing that? Is Absolutely. that correct? Absolutely. I, I didn't want to rush off to graduate school, not not knowing, you know, what, what it was that God was calling me did to Did you do. suspect it might be ministry? Yes, I did. Okay. And interestingly enough, Shane, uh, from the time that I was very small, there were people that would would come up to me, and, and 
I don't know if this terminology, you know, gets used in, in all places, but I, I specifically remember senior adults coming up to me and saying, God has his hand on you, young man. Mm-hmm. And um, anytime that I talk to students about discerning God's call on their lives, um, I, I encourage them to think about the way that the body of Christ has spoken into their lives and encourage them and affirm gifts that they might have. Because looking back on my calling and my own experience, that was a very powerful aspect of my calling. Uh, ultimately, of course, the call comes from God. But but I do feel like that that people speaking into my life, words of encouragement, acknowledging my gifts, encouraging me to use my gifts, were a big part of my recognizing God's call. Tell me, how did uh, how did the special assistant to the president, how did that come about? Okay. You and, obviously knew and, Dr. And by the White. way, yeah. Scoot's the one that had the word special assistant. You were just, assist- just assistant. <laughs> you were just sort of normal. You weren't special at all. Well, um, I, I, um, I was actually the Student Government Association president my senior year. Did you run unopposed or I, did you have – I ran unopposed. Okay. <laughs> Which I, I, probably explains a lot. I always tell Anna Kumar that was the best way to do it. You know? <laughs> I, I think Anna would agree. Yeah. Uh, but anyway – um, so, and I was also a presidential associate when okay. I was a student here. So I got to know the president and the senior staff through assisting at various events, uh, on campus. And, um, and it, and it actually was such that the, the previous assistant to the president had, had left, uh, Gardner Webb and that position became vacant right as I was graduating. And, uh, so Dr. White called me to his office and talked to me, you know, about the position. And a lot of it, to be honest with you, was driving him around to different places yeah. and um, sort of I, I don't make light of this, but being a chauffeur to some extent. Yeah. But again, the people that I got to meet, um, you know, when I would take him to other like Baptist meetings uh, where Baptist College presidents were there, uh, I remember meeting John Weems, who was the president of Meredith had been president for over 20 some years. And uh, remember Dr. White saying to me that, you know, there has to be a long-term presidency typically to, to really make an impact on, on a university. And uh, when, when you look at what Dr. Bonner has been able to accomplish Mm -hmm. uh, as, as president and see, uh, you know, he's enjoyed a great deal of success um, in, in relatively a short time but when you look at how long Dr. Bonner has been here, he may have only been president for 10 years, right. but he has been here since 1986 as a member of the senior staff. And so people knew him, trusted him, respected him, and I believe that that sort of catapulted his presidency to allow him to accomplish great things. And so I was able to meet people uh, in, in Baptist life, in higher education, uh, understand a little bit more about the North Carolina independent colleges and universities because I would drive Dr. Bonner to some of those meetings. And uh, it was just really I, – I remember one of my favorite parts of being assistant to the president, uh, my favorite story, it was actually mentioned at Apples and Accolades this year, is there was no one to pick up Anthony Negbenabor, the dean of our school of business, at the airport. And – and Dr. Bonner, I mean, Dr. White asked if I would go pick him up. And uh, so it was he and his wife. And my wife went with me, and we just had the best time getting mm-hmm. to know Anthony and, and Cheryl Diane. And ever since then, a, a friendship was forged that, you know, God has continued to intertwine our paths and that we continue to serve as colleagues and friends at Gardner Webb. So uh, that, that just helps solidify. I, I love 
being a part of a college campus and believe I, I didn't know how God was going to use me, but, but as time went on, I felt like seminary was the next place for me because I felt like it would either be in a campus ministry type position or as a faculty member. And either way, I needed a master's degree. So how long altogether did you serve in the uh, assistant to the president's role? For two years. Two years. And at the end of that, you set your sights on seminary and you went off to Sanford, I right, believe, right? I in Alabama. Right. How did that come about? Well, uh, during that time, there was a lot of, of unrest at the Southern Baptist Convention seminaries. I'm not a political person. Um, this was in the 90s, correct? It, right. Early 90s. Early 90s. Early okay. 90s. Because yeah. I, I left Gardner-Webb in 91 to go to seminary. Okay. And so there was a lot of unrest, changes in presidencies, um, some some activism on campus, and and that's just not me. I I am a peacemaker. When I think of <laughs> the word non-controversial, and I look it up in the dictionary, I'm pretty sure there's a big picture of you next to that. Well, uh, thank you. I think on yes. that. <laughs> but uh, Beeson was the first um, divinity school to. Um, be housed on a a college or university campus actually since Southern Seminary because some people don't remember Southern Seminary actually started at Furman University. Oh, I didn't know that. And no. so uh, Furman was sort of the, the mother of Southern uh, Seminary. And so um, I started checking out uh, Beeson. One of the things that I liked about Beeson uh, was, well, first of all, um, you know, it's Baptist roots on a, on a uh, campus at Sanford University, which is a, a, a well-known uh, regional uh, university. But one of the things that I particularly liked is that even though it was on a Baptist campus, the person who endowed the Divinity School, Mr. Beeson, um, intentionally wanted them to be uh, ecumenical in, in their focus. And um, sort of going back to, you know, non-controversial I really had a heart. My growing up in in Mount Airy, even though my dad pastored a Pentecostal Holiness church, he preached in Baptist churches and Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches. I I, I grew up being non denominational before it was cool to be non non denominational. Right. right. <laughs> and uh, and and so I am unapologetically um, Baptist, but I am Christian first. And um, that just really appealed to me, going to, to a, a, an ecumenical school that was explicitly evangelical as well. And uh, had, a, had a wonderful experience there with some great, great professors. And uh, you're, you're moving down to Alabama, which is so you moved to the Deep South, yes. even a little bit certainly culturally different than certainly where you grew up and definitely even around here. Uh, was that any sort of a culture adjustment for you? Uh, not as much as I thought it was going to be, yeah. because that's the end of the Blue Ridge Mountain change, chain, which I, I did not realize until we got there. I, I thought that it was going to be just you know steel mills, because yeah. Alabama and Birmingham is known for that. And uh, th- th- it's it's really a beautiful area, a beautiful city, and uh, and a beautiful campus. As a matter of fact, I think one of the reasons I fell in love with Sanford's campus is it's so similar to Gardner Webb's campus, the mm-hmm. old colonial style buildings. I, I literally felt at home when I stepped on the bu- on the campus, and I do think a large part of that was because of how much it reminded me of, of Gardner Webb. And so I would imagine there about three years. Is that yes, uh, correct? I, and, I, I was. And when you finish your MDiv there, what did you set your sights on? Well, that that is an interesting story, Shane. When I, <laughs> when I uh, I think it was the spring of my, yeah, it was 94 in the spring. Uh, Henry Blackaby, which some of your listeners may know that name, the author of Experiencing God, 
uh, he came to, to Samford, and, and I had the opportunity to sit in on an a intimate lunch. Uh, by intimate, I mean there was just a few people in the luncheon, and so truly had an opportunity to get to talk to him. To this day, I can't tell you what he said that spoke to me in this way, but what I heard God saying to me during that luncheon was, I want you to be so content in your relationship with me that if I ask you to serve in the part-time church ministry position that you're currently serving in and work at Chick-fil-A on the side, you would be completely content doing that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that, that this is mandated for everyone, but this is what I felt like that in my commitment to God, this is not very good career promotion uh, here, but in my commitment to God, I felt like that I was not supposed to send out resumes for full-time positions that if I were going to be content in my relationship with God and be willing to do that, then I needed to trust God to open a door for full-time ministry. And something would materialize independent of you aggressively searching for it. Exactly, exactly. And so um, no sooner had I made that commitment that I had three different churches that that contacted me about full-time positions, Mm -hmm. and I interviewed with with two of them, and it was not – the right fit. I, 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 one, one of them specifically offered me the position and it, uh, uh, were these churches in Alabama? These were churches in Alabama. Yeah. And, uh, one of them, I'm, I'm sorry to say Dr. Hunt was, uh, in Auburn, uh, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Hunt probably won't believe that I, I turned down uh, a position at a church in Auburn. And it was actually with someone that we had become very close to, hmm. uh, while we were in seminary, but I just, the, there was not a piece about that. And I kid you not, I went from like May to uh, August without hearing anything. And my wife's dad was in upper management with Bell South hmm. and um, had had been very supportive of, of my call and everything. But when I would hear Teresa say, well, he doesn't feel led to send out resumes <laughs> you know, to someone in the business world, that does not make sense. But um, but I, I, I do – appreciate Teresa's support of, of me during that time. She was actually teaching in the school of nursing as a clinical instructor in the school of nursing, putting me through seminary and, uh, I would do the housework, you know, so I was not a dad, but I was the stay at home husband, uh, and, and working part time. And, um, and, and Ray Hardy, uh, <laughs> who used to, to be here, uh, in the admissions office called me and asked if I would be interested in, um, interviewing for the first full-time director of admissions for the School of Divinity. Um, Buddy Freeman had been doing that sort of on an undergraduate and graduate level. He had been recruiting undergraduate religious studies majors on the undergraduate level and also trying to recruit for the Divinity School. But the, the school in its early days was recognizing that if we're going to succeed, we need a full-time director of admissions. So I came and I interviewed with uh, Dr. Lamb, uh, who was the founding dean? Robert of, Lamb, uh, right? Robert Lamb, yeah. who was the founding dean of the School of Divinity. I believe Noel Manning knows him. And, uh, Noel Manning knows him very, <laughs> very well, uh, very well. Um, and uh, and I actually went to school with Noel and Beth here at Gardner. Oh, I didn't well. know that. Okay. I sure did. Uh, so uh, we we were we were good friends then. And when I was SJ president, Noel was serving on the executive council at that time. And so we, we go back a long ways. But um, interview with Dr. Lamb and also with with Chris White. And uh, met some of the faculty in the School of Divinity, the the founding faculty, and uh, felt like that 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 was what God was calling me to do. And so we moved up here, and two years later, there was a vacancy that became available in 
um, Campus Ministries. And once again, Buddy Freeman uh, called and said, can I submit your name for that position? And, um, and Teresa and I prayed about it and said yes. And uh, that was 1996. And we've been in that position ever since. Yeah. And it's been a good thing. It's oh, it been has a good been. Thing. I, I've loved what I do. I, I want to sort of ask you, uh, speaking of Noel Manning, are, are, are certainly the people. That, yeah, there he is. He heard us talking about him. He heard us him. talking about him. He, he was us, listening to the shows. That's right. He heard us uh, talking about his father-in-law, too. That's yeah. when he had to uh, had to come in. I wanted to ask you uh, sort of now that you have this sort of uh, lengthy experience at Gardner-Webb, both as a student and in several different capacities on staff, what are the biggest changes you have seen to the school that you first knew in the late 1980s to today? What are the biggest evolutionary sort of changes you've seen? Well, the first thing is sort of obvious. It'd be technology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when it works and when it doesn't work, it'd still be technology. So the Wi-Fi in about 1989 <laughs> didn't really have that. Is that what no, you're telling me? No, exactly. Okay. Wow, exactly. Shocking here. But but that that has been a, a huge a huge change. Uh, it's taken it's taken place. Um, I, I would also say that just the the expansion of the campus has been phenomenal. It's hard for me to imagine Gardner Webb without Lake Hollifield and the Carillon and the apartments. Yeah, but none of that was was here so what was there at that time was it just undeveloped it, it land? Was undeveloped land but before you got to the undeveloped land behind mooney in that whole area mm-hmm. was um a shabby plant operations building i mean that's the nicest way i know how how to put it yeah and um but it was sort of hidden by some trees and, and stuff uh there but uh, to see the way that the campus has developed and the beautification of this campus is is truly breathtaking. Um, I I think people would be hard pressed to find a more beautiful campus in a rural setting like Bowling Springs sure. and Gardner Webb University. Sure. So that so certainly there have been structural changes. Have you perceived any other changes, uh, either not necessarily to the buildings or the technology, but anything about the character of the university? Or do you think that's remained consistent from your well, vantage point? The, I, I think that's a great question to consider not only what has changed, but what has not changed. Mm-hmm. And and what has not changed has been what I would call the family atmosphere. Yeah. I, I think sometimes that, that people use the word family um, in, in trite ways, uh, in in ways that it, it sounds nice, but it's not reality. And, and that's something that I can honestly say is not true about Gardner-Webb. If there's one thing that is true uh, about the ongoing, consistent character of Garden Web University, it is family, and by family, uh, I mean people truly caring about one another—faculty, staff, and students—and and also the the common desire to nurture one another in in this setting. And whether that nurturing is academic, or spiritual, or social, or physical, that that it truly is our desire to to nurture each other. And um, that that's something that most definitely has not changed. And and another thing I think has not changed is our commitment to to Christian higher education. Um, but I think that's that's something, as I mentioned previously, that has been strengthened under Dr. Bonner's presidency. Sure. I would be remiss, and I know this is uh, probably not something we would put under the heading of non-controversial, but I think it's a legitimate question. I'm sure you, you can find a, a balanced way to answer it. Um, I, I think it would be irresponsible of me not to ask. You obviously had a close relationship with the former president right. here and obviously have a very, very close relationship with the current president. 
from your vantage point, and again, I understand this is even now we are 12, 13, 14 years removed. It's still a delicate issue. Ta- take us through from the uh, from your vantage point when uh, when Dr. White was ultimately and Gardner Webb had their separation for various reasons. How difficult was that for you? It was extremely difficult. Um, you know, as someone who values my role as as a pastor to mm-hmm. Gardner Webb, um, and and even though I, I'm I'm very grateful that Dr. Bonner asked me to be a member of his senior staff, but the role that I cherish most at Gardner Webb is senior minister to the university because that's what I feel like my my calling and my passion um, is. Um, the 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 best way you know I've I've never been. Through, I've been through some some church controversies, but I've I've never been through something that I felt like was as close to a church split as as that experience at Gardner Webb because there there truly was a a fallout that um, that it's not as simple as some people tried to make it in terms of athletics and academics. I, I think that's um, a, an unfair characterization of that because there were people on both sides that involved a mixture of the fiber of the university, the same mm-hmm. way with students, trustees, all the way around. And um, I'll be honest with you, Shane, um, in, there were many people who wanted me to take sides in that controversy. Sure. And while I had personal opinions and personal feelings in relationship to, to that issue, I recognized that I needed to be a minister to the entire university family. And so I chose to um, subdue my own personal thoughts and feelings in relationship to the issue in order for what I felt like was the good of the whole, and that was to be able to to reach out and to minister to those who were supporters of Dr. White as well as to those, to, to simplify things, supporters of Dr. Gil Blackburn mm-hmm. uh, during that time. And and not just their supporters, but I, I also wanted to be there uh, for Dr. Blackburn and for Dr. White during that time as as someone who uh, was interested in their well-being in the midst of that controversy. At the lowest point of that controversy, did you, as an alumnus, as someone on staff, did you ever have grave concerns about whether or not Gardner-Webb would ever fully rebound from that? I, I knew – I felt in my heart we would survive – my question as a staff member and as an alumnus would be, could we thrive after this? Yeah. That, so survival was no, I mean, you know, Gardner Webb has gone through some very difficult times in its history, you know, um, and, and the fact our namesake, you know, Gardner Webb, uh, Omax Gardner and, and his wife, Faye Webb Gardner, um, I've heard many people tell stories about how that they they were one of the primary reasons that Gardner Webb survived during some of the difficult times of of uh, the the war and everything, um, but so for me, you know, we're bulldogs. There was not a question about us surviving, but could we thrive in the future? There was a real question for me about that. And what do you remember a particular moment where you thought we're going to be okay? Probably a few months into to Frank Campbell's yeah. presidency. Um, I applaud the wisdom of the trustees in in hiring Dr. Frank Campbell. Um, He had a pastor's heart as a president. Uh, His 
experience as a president almost mirrored Dr. White's uh, experience because he left uh, First Baptist Statesville to go to uh, Averett University Mm -hmm. in Danville, Virginia, around the same time that Dr. White came to to Gardner-Webb. And Dr. Campbell had just retired uh, when all of this came about. And um, his knowledge of Baptist higher education, his pastoral heart, and his desire to um, meet people where they are and listen, he was a great listener. And um, would would listen to all facets of of the issue that I, I really felt like that that a few months into his presidency, um, honestly, he actually spoke at a scholarship luncheon in November, shortly after he was hired in October, and when I heard him speak at that uh, scholarship luncheon, and and he said the words, "We're going to be okay." Mm-hmm. Um, or, or something to that effect. Sort of an FDR fireside chat yes, quality. That's the way. That's the way I felt about it, yeah. and and I knew in my heart at that point we were going to be okay. Do you uh, do you still describe your relationship right now with Chris White? Well, we don't get to see each other uh, often at, at all. If if I saw him at a a Baptist meeting or something, it would be very very cordial. Mm-hmm. He has been very encouraging of of my career, of me furthering my education. Um, but to, to say we have a close relationship would, would not be fair. And a lot of that, you know, has to do with just distance. This is, I promise the only borderline gotcha question I'm going to ask. I get, I get one for one hour. <laughs> um, the divinity school at Gardner Webb is named the Chris White school of divinity. Uh, should that name be changed? Well, I, I don't think it's my decision to determine whether or not it should be changed, but I, I will say this. I think there's great wisdom in not putting anyone's name on a building until after they have retired uh, in terms of a current employee. Just as a general. Just as a general yeah, rule. Yeah. Just as a general rule. Yeah. If if someone came to me and, and said, you know, we want to name the, the Office of Christian Life and Service, the Jessup Office of Christian Life and Service, uh, I, I would not want that to happen right. until after my retirement even if they deemed it to be appropriate after that. I just think that there's wisdom in it's, – it's not that we shouldn't give people accolades while they're alive. I just think permanently attaching someone's name who is a current employee of the university uh, that that there you know, could be well, – it's a, It places a great burden on that it person. It does. It really yeah, does. a lot of pressure You're exactly on that person. Right. Okay. That was a very good answer, by the way. <laughs> Uh, I want to ask you about a, a couple other uh, things pertaining to in the time we have left pertaining to university life. First of all, um, there are a lot of – in 2015, there are a lot of what I would call controversial social issues mm-hmm. that seem to be gripping not only the, the church but the, just the human rights. Do you – as a pastor, how do you – Particularly, you're dealing with a lot of young people, mm-hmm. and you have these young adults, you know, folks that are 18 to 22, and and in many cases, you know, a lot of the answers you've given today are very nuanced and very balanced and very well articulated. Sometimes college students tend to be a little bit more impassioned right. and maybe not as balanced. How do you sort of minister to them? How do you sort of shepherd people on both sides of various divides? Um, 
that have strong views on either side. How do you counsel folks when they come to your office and maybe they have a very strong position on this particular social issue or you have someone else who comes into your office and want they want guidance and they have a, a, maybe an opposing uh, position mm-hmm. on the issue? How do you how do you navigate that? Because that would seem to me to be a very difficult task. Right. Well, the first thing I try to do is listen. Uh, I, I feel like that throughout Scripture, there are some wonderful examples of of listening and the importance of listening in terms of the role that it plays in ministering to, to people. One of my favorites is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, when the spirit guides him to draw near to the chariot of the Ethiopian official and instead of immediately, you know, walking up and introducing himself at, when he gets to the chariot, he listens and he hears the Ethiopian reading from the scroll of Isaiah and after he listens, he asks a penetrating question, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian official says, how can I unless someone guides me? Hmm. And so I've sort of tried to adopt that role in terms of my interaction with students and faculty and staff is try to listen to where they are and and then to discern if there's a penetrating question that I can ask them that can help me better help them and um and then offer any guidance that that i might be able to do so during during that time and so the the first step is listening and then the, the the second aspect of that and it goes right along with listening is that every student every faculty every staff member that comes into my office they are created by god and in the image of god and regardless of where they may be on a social position or a political position, um, I see them first and foremost as a, a child of God who has immense dignity and worth because they've been created by God and in God's image. I want to to that. I think that's a very well said answer. To that point, I want to ask you this. I heard a, a former uh, United States President uh, Bill Clinton remark one time. He said that in 2015. People generally, although if you watch the news, maybe you wouldn't come to this conclusion, but he said in his estimation that there's less racial divides than there have been historically. There's less divides along socioeconomic lines maybe than there have been historically, but that people are worse off than they've ever been about wanting to be around people or being tolerant of being around people that disagree with them. Right. He said that's the biggest divide. Do you feel like there's an element of truth to that? I I do think that there's an element of truth to that, and um, I— I think that part of the reason that that that's the case today, Shane, is that people have confused tolerance with compromise. Yeah. I can be tolerant of another person's viewpoints without compromising my own and even have deep friendships. There there are people on our campus that I share close friendships with, enjoy having a sit-down conversation with that that we don't agree on on several social issues or political issues, but I still consider them friends and I value their input uh, in my life. You have to be able to separate people from ideology. Absolutely. You know, or from theology, whatever it might be. Uh, I want to ask you about this. Uh, Moving forward for Gardner-Webb as a university, as someone who's now, I would say, a very astute observer of not only Gardner-Webb, but also of higher education, uh, what are the biggest challenges you see that face Gardner-Webb moving forward into the next stage of its growth? Well, competition uh, for students is is huge uh, because even though, I mean, well, all, all I have to do is just mention uh, 
two two schools, uh, Sweetbriar in Virginia and Clearwater in Florida, mm-hmm. who have recently announced that they're closing their doors. That's right. Uh, both of those schools are, are private uh, institutions, and um, I, I think that shows how that while there's still a demand for higher education, uh, that schools that are tuition driven uh, is is a huge challenge. And so affordability, as as we've heard Dr. Bonner uh, talk about a lot, as well as other senior staff members, uh, that's that's a huge issue. And also combating some some rhetoric that we hear um, even in our own state uh, about whether or not a liberal arts education is the best uh, preparation for uh, for jobs sure. and for vocations. Sure. And you know, I, I it grieves me to to hear that, and partly because I'm uh, you know an employee of an institution that strongly champions the liberal arts but also because I'm a product of a liberal arts education. And I feel like that, that my worldview has not only been shaped because I was uh, part of, of a institution that was a proponent of a Christian worldview, but also my, my worldview has been shaped by being part of a liberal arts institution. And that, that foundation has helped me view issues and view the world through a, a broader perspective and, and not a, a very narrowly focused perspective. I've always said I think that's one of the, the great, among many, great positive aspects of, the, of our university is there are a lot of schools out there on either sides of – pick any issue under the right. sun. Pick a political issue. Pick a scientific issue. Pick a religious issue that I think in many cases are trying to push their students in one side or the other into a very, to use your word, narrow viewpoint, whatever that might be. I think one of the great things about a liberal arts university that also has a strong spiritual development component to it is here you come in and say, hey, we think faith is a good thing. We think serving the community is a good thing. We think that you do, with your education, have an obligation for service in your community. At the same time, we're going to give you a a breadth and depth of information and trust that God gave you a brain. He wants you to use it (laughs) and that you can make decisions that are consistent with your personal value systems. And I think there are fewer and fewer schools doing that. I agree. State and private schools alike, I think. And so I I think you make a a very, very strong point there. You mentioned uh, something about cost. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you can imagine, this is an issue that uh, is is, – Near and dear to my heart. Um, I wonder, as someone on senior staff, do you ever have, especially as a parent now of a college student and a parent of a future college mm-hmm. student, do you ever find yourself bending the ear of people on campus to say, hey, I know we're talking about this, but we really need to address this affordability issue? Well, I, I don't have to, to say that. Yeah. Um, I, I just say amen, because I, I can promise you that, that Dr. Bonner and Mike Harden and David Halsey well, the entire senior staff is very much aware, and there are very few senior staff conversations that take place that that issue of affordability and sustainability mm-hmm. are are not in some way a part of the conversation. And so, um, I, I have even even though you know my position may not be as much in a, a situation to to add a lot except an amen to to the conversation, um, I, I'm very grateful that they do recognize that, that that's a huge issue. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, our endowment 
Uh, we, we need to grow our endowment at mm-hmm. Garden Web. I think that's a huge need for us. Um, when you think about it, Shane, we are still relatively young as a senior institution. I know yeah. Garden Web was founded in 1905 uh, as a, a boarding high school, but when you think about you know senior institution early 70s, um, the the persons who were graduating at that time are just now reaching retirement. Yeah, um, which is why I'm grateful for the community support that Gardner Webb has received and friends of Gardner Webb who never graduated from Gardner Webb, who maybe had some isolated connection to Gardner Webb that caused them to fall in love with Gardner Webb. It's not their alma mater, but now this is their school. And um, I think as more alumni uh, are in positions to be able to give back and more friends of Gardner Webb who have those unique and interesting connections to Gardner Webb continue to believe in this place that it will help us address the issue of affordability. Two more questions I'll ask. We'll let you get out of here. The first is, uh, where, where do you see yourself going? Are you are you a are you a Gardner Webb lifer? Are you here for the duration? Well, I, I would like to think so. Um, I really go back to that conversation with Henry Blackaby. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have continued to not send my resume out. Uh, I'm not saying it hasn't been requested, and, and there there have been a couple sure. of times that I have done that, but it's not been something that I initiated because I really do love what I do, and I am content in in my relationship with Christ in this place. And um, sort of my – it's not my life verse. My life verse is, is trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. But the verse of Scripture that God used to sort of solidify my call of ministry um, is Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, not knowing where he was going. And so I want to be so committed to my relationship with God and, and my living out his call upon my life that even though I don't know what lies out there in the future, I'm 48 uh, years old, that my answer to God is yes, even though I don't know where I'm going. So, and and I'm grateful to have a wife who has supported me in that. Uh, and that's actually a very good segue into the final question I wanted to ask you, which is the the first time. I mean, I, I think when I came to freshman, I mean, I, obviously everybody knows Tracy Jessup, <laughs> but the first time I really had any sort of substantial exposure to knowing who the Jessup family was, was Barry Hambright, <laughs> uh, our late friend in common, Barry Hambright, who uh, I was a political science monitor, and he used to talk extensively about how he tried to counsel your wife, your now wife, away from marrying you. He did everything he possibly could to say, you know, you're a nurse, you're a pretty girl, you have lots of options out there. Don't settle down with a guy who's going into ministry who will make three dollars an hour don't do this yes and so I, I would love for you to comment on that from your perspective i'm sure you had to be aware of this that barry hambright was not exactly your biggest champion oh i, I was very much aware of that um uh, and and you know even his his last year on campus he would see me and and i would hear him calling from across across campus well if, if it isn't the unreverend tracy jessup <laughs> And the reason he would say that is because I'm licensed to ministry, but I'm not ordained uh, to ministry. And uh, but yeah, he even put the the book that he put together about Gardner Webb. He even put something in the, there. There's a picture of Teresa and me in the book, 
where he talked about <laughs> trying to count, counsel Teresa and that she did not take his advice and married me anyway. Uh, but uh, I, I'm so thankful that she did not take his advice uh, and that we, we celebrate June 24th, our 26th wedding anniversary. And, and on another note, I, I'm thankful for uh, the uh, – the the friendship with with the Hambright family yeah. as well, um, one of the greatest honors uh, that I've had, and also one of the most difficult times that I've had in ministry was um, his battle with with cancer. Yeah. Uh, but but the honor part of that was was when he asked me to be a part of of his service, and um, and I still stay in touch with the Hambright family, and, and was actually in school with both of his daughters. Great people, Great they are people. absolutely a first Most rate family, no Most question definitely. about that. Well, Tracy, this has been a real pleasure, and Thank I you, say uh, as someone who graduated from Gardner Webb and as someone who's been on staff here for a few years, that when I think, and I mean this sincerely, I would say this about you if you weren't in the studio. <laughs> That when I think of sort of the quintessential American family man and sort of a guy who, you know, you know what you get with Tracy Jessup. Wow. And uh, and so I salute you for that. And uh, in a day and age where we have a lot of folks who say one thing and do another, you live it. And for that, we, we absolutely salute you for well, that. I appreciate that. If I could say one more thing, one is, uh, well, two more things. One is I wish you well, both Thank in you. your future marriage as well as, as you're going to law school. Uh, even though the place you're going to used to have fighting Christians as a, a mascot. And, and now are in the Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, so, the Phoenix yeah. now. But the other thing I, I want to say, um, and and I, I hope it speaks well uh, of, of both of us and of all graduates of Gardner-Webb, I, I had a professor one time who said there are two types of schools. There's the type of school that's caught up in itself where they want graduates to be able to say, I went there. But then there's the type of school that's like Gardner-Webb who likes to point to our graduates and say they went here uh, because they're the ones going out making an impact on the world. Now, granted, I want Gardner-Webb to be a school where our graduates sure. are proud of as well. Yeah. But in terms of what, what distinguishes us in many ways is our focus is on the students and on the graduates where we proudly point. And, and I proudly point to Shane McGrath and say, you went to school here, Shane, and we're proud of you. Thank you, thank you. This has been uh, a great conversation with Tracy Jessup. We're going to uh, spin a few records and come back and visit with uh, Cleveland County educator Daniel Thomas and ask him about his potential run for town council here in Boiling Springs. This is Saturday with Shane McGrath back in a minute for hour number two of two, Fastest Two Hours in Radio.
Gardner-Webb Athletics prides itself on achieving great victories while also enhancing the development of outstanding students. The Bulldog Club supports this mission by financing scholarships for Gardner-Webb student-athletes and offers athletic event benefits to its members. With your support, the Bulldog Club can do more to give Gardner-Webb Athletics the tools that it needs to succeed. The Bulldog Club, because championships begin with scholarships. More information is available at supportgwu.com. WGWG. If your dream job is in the business field but you lack the academic degree, Gardner-Webb University can help book your ticket to success. Gardner-Webb University offers both undergraduate and master's degrees through the nationally accredited Godbold School of Business. Students work daily with former CEOs, business professionals, and dedicated faculty members in the classroom. More information is available at gardner-webb.edu. Ever dreamed of becoming a nurse? The Gardner-Webb School of Nursing offers fully accredited programs of study. The Associate Degree Program, the Bachelor of Science in Nursing Program, from RN to BSN, and a Master of Science in Nursing Program. Gardner-Webb now offers a Doctor of Nursing Practice Program. In addition to great classroom learning, nursing students have the opportunity to choose from over 180 clinical sites from which they receive hands-on experience. More information is available at gardner-webb.edu. Thank you, Tom Black, the man that I, I really think has the greatest voice in the history of Gardner-Webb University. Welcome into hour number two of two, the fastest two hours in radio. If it's Saturday, you know that it's Shane McGrath on Yonder Radio, where our Internet stream is warm and inviting, don't you know, on this Saturday, a sunny Saturday morning on uh, the, the best spot on God's green earth, Boiling Springs, North Cackalack. We've just been visiting with Tracy Jessup, Vice President of Christian Life and Service and Senior Minister to Gardner-Webb University, also a Gardner-Webb alum and former assistant to the president. A uh, very engaging conversation with Tracy, as it always is, definitely in the uh, all-around good guys category. We gave a shout-out earlier to our man Paul Hemrick, who is expecting the birth of his daughter today, and as we speak, is sitting in a hospital uh, waiting for waiting for the uh, the big event to begin, and his, and his family is on their way up from Georgia. And so uh, he's got a big day, and of course, he's really excited, knowing Paul like I do, he's really excited because I know he's got a big uh, recruiting camp that he's got to go to on Monday. So it should work out that he'll be able to be on the road again by Monday morning. So that's a good thing for him. <laughs> he's done his part and out of here, Jack. So, uh, and a shout out to our man Jordan Turner, who's uh, driving down to the beach and streaming us uh, on the TuneIn radio app, where we always come in crisp and clear before we send this off to the broadcasting HOF. We're going to spend the second hour with uh, a good friend of this program, a member of uh, the Garden Web graduating class of 2001, Mr. Daniel Thomas. Uh, Daniel is a uh, social science, uh, social studies, they call it at that level, teacher at Crest High School here in Boiling Springs, a Garden Web graduate, as I mentioned, and the son 
of one of the longest-serving employees, probably in the history of Gardner-Webb, I would think, in Larry Thomas, who's a member of the campus police staff and uh, a Boiling Springs institution. Mr. Thomas, I give you a warm welcome into the little show that could, sir. Thank you for having me, Shane. Now, tell me this. This is uh, usually like the first question I like to ask a guest when they come on is, in your case, you've got several big events in your life. You know, you got the, the day you graduated college. You know, the day that you and Sarah got married. You've got the birth of your children. You've got the day you found out, hey, you're going to have a full-time job. Where does this day rank for you in relation to all those? I have to think it's it's right near the very top. It may be at the very top, uh, with apologies to my wife and three kids who I know are listening. Uh, I told you before we went on air, I'm a little nervous. I've lived at Gardner-Webb for 37 years, and this is the first time being in the studio, which I know carries – uh, a lot of influence throughout this country. Yes, uh, it's our sprawling metropolitan studios. And Jeff Tubbs, when he came on a few weeks ago, he told a great story that when he came for his interview at Garden Web, like in 1986 or something like this, they actually put him up overnight in this building. <laughs> so he and his wife, they come in. He was living in Tennessee at the time, and they bring him in for this interview. And they say, hey, we'll put you up for the night, put the two of you up for the night. So they bring him over here, and they bring him upstairs into a room that is probably like Jessica Greer's office now. And they have this, like, army cot, and he said literally an old-school light bulb dangling from the ceiling. And he said that was our, our you know, uh, Shangri-La overnight accommodations when he came. So it's we've dressed it up a little bit since then. All right, now I mentioned that, that you are a teacher at Crest High School. That's right. And what subjects do you teach? I teach AP Psychology, Civics, uh, U.S. History. I've taught World History. I will be teaching African-American history and AP government um, next year. And how long have you uh, taught at Crest for? This is – we just finished my 11th year at Crest High School. So you've been there your whole career. I taught for two years at Statesville Christian School when okay. we started out. Uh, my wife is from Statesville, and so we lived there for a couple of years and then moved back down here in 2004. And you were very happy to do this. I am, yes. Yes, yes. All right, now tell us. So you, you grew up in Boiling Springs. I did. And because your dad has been, how long has your dad been on staff at Gardner Webb? He has been campus police for 37 years, maybe 38. Yes. Uh, my entire life. Long, long time. So you've grown up in this community. I have. We actually grew up in the camp, what is, was the campus house. I'm not sure what happens in that building now. Uh, I don't it, think people in the campus house are sure what <laughs> happens in that building now. <laughs> so you grew up essentially on campus. I did. And, and still my parents live right across the street from the radio station now. Uh, and so for 25 years, 25 years, I guess, I've lived across the street from this studio. Is Larry listening this morning? I don't know if he's listening or not. He's he, – if it has to be streamed, I'm not sure. He's, he's not sure that might be. Yeah, he uh, he rejected CDs for the longest time. <laughs> he, he said he was not going to listen to those little plastic records. Uh, but uh, so, so having grown up here, what sort of – the town has changed a lot. It has. And you're very, I would say, if someone were to ask me to describe you, one of the things I would say is, well, he's, he's very sincerely, very passionate about this community, mm -hmm. and you're a very community-oriented sort of person. What was it like growing up around here? Because it had to be even different than it is now, I would think. It was quieter. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the homestead development was something that happened in my teenage years, and, and so all of that was forest you know, and we had a drugstore on the corner and no big CVS or fast food restaurants. Well, Hardee's has been here. Hardee's is they're, the constant in my life. They are committed. They are. <laughs> and Dr. Eastman has kept them afloat, I think, over the years. Um, 
So, I mean, did did they have the Greenway then? Did y'all have the Broad River Greenway at that time? There was the Broad River, of course. It was not as green and clean as it is now. They've done a great job cleaning that up. It it used to be something that you maybe didn't want to go to one side of the river or the other. So it wasn't like after dark. It wasn't like you would, you know, you and your friends would ride your bikes down there and you know hike around the river you didn't do this very much not very much but uh yeah i mean we'd go down to the river and play around and during the daylight hours but uh, it wasn't the the uh, gym that it is now now you uh you graduated from crest correct I did. Mm-hmm. and uh, i assume 1997 is Nin- that correct? 1996. 1996 i, I spent a, a wasted year at davidson college uh, so that's that's where the five-year college plan comes in. I wanted to ask you about this because um, I'm very glad you brought that up, actually. Your name came up in conversation not long ago because I was in my office pontificating about the, the, the issues we face when it comes to recruiting students. And I think I was having this conversation with Micah Martin, as I remember. And I was talking about how Gardner-Webb – I'm not sharing any trade secrets here. This should be fairly easy to figure out. Gardner-Webb sometimes, as do all of these small liberal arts private schools, has a difficult time recruiting transfer students because there's really not a coherent value-added proposition for most of our transfer. The, the vast majority of the transfers we get are folks coming from Gaston College or Cleveland Community College, from the community college system. We really don't get, by and large, a lot of students that are transferring from other four-year institutions. And that would be common among any of the private schools, by and large. And I said, and I was going on and on saying, you know, people don't transfer from Davidson to come to Gardner-Webb. And as soon as I said that, Micah pounced on me and says, actually, you know someone who did that very thing. So you you got into Davidson after high school, and you went there. What happened that year? Obviously, you didn't enjoy it. Well, the first semester I did well, 2.5 at Davidson, which is average for incoming freshmen because – all-nighters at Davidson College are a weekly event, not just uh, when it gets to be exam time. Second semester, uh, I don't know what happened, but I spent a lot more time at UNC Wilmington uh, and Chapel Hill. I mean, they were going to the Final Four. Um, I was not uh, as mature as I should have been to be a Davidson College student, and so it didn't work out for me or for them, I don't think, and so uh, – I uh, I looked to come back home. So you came back to Gardner Webb. I did. Now you at some point had to call Larry. I had to. I'm pretty sure I called Lynn. Oh, you called Lynn. You I didn't call so. Larry. Yeah, I think I just called Lynn. So what did Larry say though? At some point, you walked back into his home, and and having the prodigal son having gone off to mm-hmm. Lake Norman for a year and came back, what did he say? Oh, I don't know. He's he's a man of few words, but uh, I think he was probably pretty glad to. To have me back at the house. So, so there were no uh, snide comments about your GPA mate or anything. Oh no! Oh no! Okay, maybe so, thought, but not, but not said. Not stated. What did your mother say when you called and said I'm coming home? Oh, she was she was welcoming. Uh, she was glad to to have me and uh, knew that I was kind of in a tough spot at Davidson, not doing, not making the best decisions. When I say a wasted year, well, um, so she was she was glad to. Uh, that, that the prodigal was returning home. Uh, I think that's a pretty good uh, statement. Why uh, Why did you choose to go to Davidson at first? What was the uh, the thinking? Just because, I mean, it's obviously very academically prestigious. Was it is. That weird, was that the big thing? My, my big brother, uh, my older brother, Josh, uh, went to Davidson, graduated from Davidson, okay. and he married Ellen, who uh, also went to Davidson, the whole Sprinkle family. That's her maiden name, uh, or Davidson. She and upgraded so, considerably. She, she did, yes. Um and so, yeah, it's a beautiful campus, uh, great atmosphere, 
people love, as as Tracy was talking about earlier, people like to say they went to Davidson. Um, and uh, it's small campus, only 400 people get in each year, so they keep it at around 1,600 on campus. Um, there's a lot of great things about Davidson. Was Bob McKillop the basketball coach there then? He was. He's been there forever. He has been. Um, was Davidson basketball relevant at that time? Not like they have been since Steph Curry came through, yeah. but uh, they would compete in the Southern Conference, uh, usually year in and year out. So they were, they were Division One at that time? Uh, yes. Okay. So you come back to Gardner-Webb and you endeavored that you're going to major in history. That's right. Which is something we share, by the way. Uh, we've both, we both majored in history at Gardner-Webb, so we know a lot of the same people. We do. Uh, your first time you walked into Tony Eastman's classroom, you thought what? Well, back then, this was maybe before it was tobacco-free. Uh, maybe. Dr. Eastman would come in, and I, I, I still don't know how he can light a pipe, take a draw off of it, open up his notebooks, lecture for 50 minutes, pick the pipe back up, and it's still burning. I don't know how he has that <laughs> wizardry, um, but uh, I, I was an, an Eastman disciple. I know you're a Yelton man. Yes. I was – unfortunately – I listened to the hype and, and was a little scared of Yelton in the first couple of years. And then when I finally got into some of his classes, especially on World War II, um, it was fantastic. And, and I wish I would have uh, jumped in a little bit earlier with him. So, uh, so you had Eastman, you had Yelton, you had Hambright. Yes, I had Hambright. I'm, I'm close to a political science um, double major. But as we talked about with Davidson, I didn't have the greatest drive back in college. <laughs> Um, that's that's something else we actually share. I think I was two classes short of a double major okay. with poli sci as well. Yeah. So our, our our narratives continue to right. coalesce. Um, you were did you uh, you did history with teacher licensure? I'm guessing I did not. Uh, my parents, my dad specifically, told me I should, and I uh, I don't want to do that. You know, I just want to major in history. I thought I was going to go on to graduate school and be a history professor or something like that, and. Uh, so I just was a history major, um, and after graduating, we moved to Statesville. Uh, our friend Brad Borders um, said that Statesville Christian School needed a history teacher and an English teacher, and that were that was what my wife and I majored in. We interviewed, got the jobs, and that's how I landed in the high school classroom. So you met your wife at Gardner-Webb. I did, yes. So she came down here from Statesville, went to college. That's right. Uh, you are a very – you're a very interesting person. Hmm. How did uh, – what do you remember about the first time you asked your, your now wife out on a date? Well, if I remember correctly, it was her that asked me. Ah. She, she claimed to be going on some mission trip or some focus trip, and she needed a sleeping bag. And so she is the one who approached me and asked if she could borrow a sleeping bag, which – you know, I could really tell what she was getting after she wanted to go out on a date with me. And so I think our very first date was at homecoming, the homecoming dance. I think I piled into the back of her a Suzu Trooper with about seven other people. I was in the way back, not even in a seat. Uh, and she drove us to the Waffle House um, and the rest is in Shelby or Gaffney in Gaffney, the real, oh. the real Waffle House, <laughs> the one that used to be there. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time down there and then we did a lot of dates uh, at the calf and Gardner Webb. Uh, because that's about how much money I had. Would you uh, Would you at least do the honorable thing, and at the conclusion of your cafeteria date, would you carry her, her tray over oh. to the conveyor? Would oh, you do absolutely. this? absolutely. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a gentleman first. No question. And would you leave a good tip when you went on your cafeteria dates? Oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, at, uh, so you got married. Did you get married right after college? We did. I graduated in May of 2001. We got married June 9th. We just celebrated our 14th. Anniversary. We actually got married at Lake Hollifield, 
at sunset, and I was a little upset with the Tucker Center. I'm, I'm reformed. I'm on board <laughs> with the Tucker Center now. I did not go in there for the first two years that it was open because in protest. they built it right on the spot where we got married, and you know they didn't even ask me. Not one time did they. Who officiated that ceremony? Brad Borders, uh, a friend from from Statesville, uh, was was my uh, was our uh, officiant, and my dad called him Stone Cold Steve Austin. I don't know if you've seen Brad Borders, but if you if you could find a picture of him, then you you will understand that. That would be him. So you you teach at Statesville Christian for two years, mm-hmm. and then you have the opportunity to come back home and teach at Crest. How did this materialize? Well, at Statesville Christian, I was the history department. I taught. Uh, Sixth through twelfth grade, um, I coached baseball, soccer, and basketball, um, and I loved it. It was fantastic. It was a very small school, parents involved. Um, I don't know if I should talk about this on the radio. I think Maybe you Statesville should. Christian is listening. Uh, I don't think. But they are. Uh, the second year, they they kind of sold out. Um, in my opinion, they they hired a basketball coach to recruit. Uh, kids from uh, I think it was the Ukraine or Lithuania somewhere and their justification was oh if we can make the school a lot bigger then more people can hear about Jesus and I was like yeah I don't think the means justify the ends and we can also hang more banners exactly (laughs) and and pay ourselves more but uh, oops (laughs) I I shouldn't have said that Um, but I got a call from Roger Harris who was the principal at Crest High School I met him the other night I got a call from him he's on the board of education now yeah Mm -hmm. Um, and I was actually standing in my classroom uh, during a planning period at Statesville Christian School, and he invited me to come back and teach at Crest. And unfortunately, it was in the beginning uh, of the second semester, and so I had to tell him, well, I have to honor my contract. And he said, well, I'll, I'll get somebody to uh, to sub for the rest of the semester. And um, so he, he is the one who paved the way for me to come back to Crest High School. He was my high school. He's He's the person who inspired me to be a history major and a history teacher anyway. He was my AP U.S. history teacher in in high school. So, needless to say, uh, you you voted for Roger Harris. What do you mean? I just liked the reelect Roger Harris <laughs> uh, Facebook page. As I, um, it's pretty. It is. Uh, it sort of puts me in the mind of uh, Steve Spurrier always puts Duke at twenty uh, fifth in his uh, preseason coaches poll because they were the first one to give him a Division one head coaching job. So, if Roger Harris announced for the United States Senate, he's got your vote. I think so. Yeah, I'd go ahead and declare that right now. So, when you come back now, now you're teaching at your high school alma mater at this point. You you probably knew a lot of the people there, I'm sure, and and it's possible you were probably even teaching younger siblings of people that you went to high school with. Was that sort of odd for you? Is that a difficult transition in any way? It, it really wasn't. Yeah, um, I enjoy this area. I love the school. It, it in a way it, to be known and to know the people there uh, makes makes it part of what it is. Um, so it's that that wasn't really ever a problem. What does Crest stand for? Wow, the, do you know the acronym? Yes, I don't. Really? I don't. All right, I'm going to drop some knowledge on okay. you. Okay. Kyle Lanning taught me this. Okay. And someone taught him this recently. Uh, Cleveland Rural Education stands together. Okay. I, I think I've heard that before. I, Do you think it's true? You think it's I, made up? I don't. I think it's just that we're on top of the hill. That's the uh, way that, I've always understood a it. A more likely explanation, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I have to launch a 2020 investigation. <laughs> what does Crest stand for? Does it stand for anything? They stand together. Um, and so, uh, you, now why the interest in history? Where does that come from for you? Well, I, uh, it, it, it came in large part from Roger Harris, uh, the way he taught the class. Um, I got a chance to go to Washington DC, my junior year in high school, 
uh, to be a part of presidential classroom. And so I got to go up as a, as a 16 year old and spend a week there and kind of get the inside tour of, of, of the white house. Um, this is before it all kind of got shut down and closed off to the public and the Congress and the Supreme court and et cetera. And, and, um, it's just fascinating to me to try to understand who we are by learning about who people just like us in, in many ways have lived life in the past in different times and contexts. I want to ask you about this. You probably uh, get some students that come into your class that are somewhat apathetic about the subject matter. Um, how do you, because, and not that you really have to, but in some ways you kind of do, how do you justify, how do you uh, help them understand the significance of what it is they're studying? I will take, I will pontificate as well. Uh, I've been known to do that once in a while. Mm -hmm. I will try to explain to them the importance of liberal arts and I understand the STEM push and we need science and technology and math and I get all that uh, for the jobs of the future but um, liberal arts they, it, it opens up your mind it gives you the opportunity to see other perspectives and that's why we read literature that's why we study history so that we can understand what it means to be a human being and that is a very difficult thing to do when you're 16 because you're very narrowly focused because you have not experienced a great deal in life. But as best I can, I try to open those doors to them, at least give them a peek uh, into what it would mean to be a human being in a different time or a different context. And hopefully that will spur them on to, to do a little uh, studying of their own. Are you, do you find that you're usually successful in these efforts to help them understand a little bit more what it is, the significance is that they're doing? I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it varies uh, with, with different classes and with different individuals, but uh, I think that at least they can remember some of the lessons that, that I try to teach them. Do you find, let me ask you this, uh, do you find that there is a, you always see these uh, pithy little bumper stickers saying things like critical th critical thinking, the other national debt. Do you find that there is a, a deficit of critical thinking in uh, in our classrooms today? Yeah, I think so. I, I, it's probably always been that way. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, reading and critical thinking, understanding what you're reading, those are really big challenges I think that we face as educators today. The, the reality is, is that if I want to know, you know, who was the 16th president and I don't know off the top of my head, I can ask the Google and, and, and she will tell me. Um, but in terms of understanding what that information means and how to apply it in different contexts, that's a skill that we really do have to continue to focus on. Do you, uh, David Yelton always had a good phrase for that, by the way, he would always say, you know, there's not a whole lot of value in teaching. Rememberization was the term <laughs> yeah. that he would made up to, to talk about that. Um, what do you – let me ask then this uh, very clearly. Would you say that the uh, deficit of critical thinking among among high school students in general today, would you say that it is more substantial than it has been in the past? And that's purely a speculative question on your part, but I mean just according to your experience, what do you think? It is. I think that attention spans are decreasing because of the little gadgets that everyone has. Uh, that's a – that's a battle that we're trying to fight at the high school and trying to figure out how to be a 21st century uh, institution while at the same time understanding how to balance uh, the technology that the kids have. Uh, they are constantly Snapchatting and doing all the things, and that that makes it very difficult to try to hold their attention for I, – I read an article the other day that said that attention spans are now – 
lower than goldfish, which apparently is eight seconds. I don't know how they know that, but you know, it was on the internet. So, so it must be true. It must be. Um, here's a good question for you. What percentage of your students would you say read for pleasure outside of school? It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it could be, you know, could be a magazine, but what, what percentage of them read on any regular basis? Probably I would say 20. That's just off the top of my head. Um, we have some students who, instead of looking at their cell phones in class, they are reading in class. And so they're getting into uh, different fantasy literature or uh, science fiction type stuff. And that's a lot of what's out there. I guess the whatever comes after Harry Potter in this particular uh, age, um, that's the kind of stuff that I think they read for pleasure. Do you find that the no surprise, I'm sure that those students tend to be the ones that do a little bit better in the classroom? They do. Yes. Yeah. Um, what percentage of your students would you say go off to college? Probably 60, 65. And what sort of majors do they by and large matric matriculate into, would you say? Well, I, I've heard a lot of nursing uh, this this time around, so mm -hmm. I think we've got a lot of nurses coming coming out of Crest High School this year. So I want to then revisit that question that you brought up earlier, and I think very nicely so. Um, do you feel as though – the push by some to push uh, students into majors that always have obvious job titles attached to them. Do you think that's starting to have an impact? I think it is. I think that push against STEM education is yeah. all the rage, and um, I'm not angry about that. But uh, I do think that there's a I think that there's an importance to liberal arts that we miss uh, when we push science and technology too much and uh, at the exclusion of other subjects i think so i mean when 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 my brother was going to davidson i remember it being said that uh companies would want to hire an, a literature major an english major from davidson uh, because they know that that she would be able to think and uh, i don't think that we talk about it that way anymore i think we we look too much um, at specialization and not as much at the critical thinking total human being kind of mindset to the uh this is another yeltonism i can't take credit for this but to to the crowd that is always uh, forever pushing the obvious job title uh sort of uh, push for for four-year college students he always points out that you know there are a lot of four-year universities uh, that offer textile management programs mm -hmm. for a long long time right and uh, that seemed to be a, a good a good track until it wasn't, mm -hmm. until that industry went away altogether. So there's certainly two sides to this coin. I want to ask you some about your – sort of from your vantage point as an educator in North Carolina. North Carolina is – and I'm not going to ask this question in an editorialized way. I really want to hear what you have to say about it. North Carolina is a state that if you were to poll people from the other 49 states, you would hear overwhelmingly good things. North Carolina is a state that, for whatever reason, some of them rational, some of them probably irrational, uh, for whatever reason, elicits positive feelings from other people. They think about our beaches. They think about our mountains. They think about barbecue. They think about sunshine. They think about Andy Griffith. There's all <laughs> kinds of reasons. But North Carolina has a positive reputation. One thing our state gets consistently criticized for, both inside of our state and outside of our state, is uh, is the way that we do public education, particularly in the at the K through twelve level? Uh, how much of that criticism do you think is justified? I think there's been an overreaction, especially at the state house, uh, in terms of maybe what the perception is of public schools. I know that um, 
I know that there are a lot of quality teachers at Crest High School um, and in and some of our feeder schools. I know uh, I'm friends with a lot of great elementary school teachers and middle school teachers as well. And so I, I know that there is this concern, perhaps, that public schools are failing our kids or something to that effect. And so there's a push for more charter schools, which again, I don't have a problem with that. There's a, there's a push at the state house for more, for more choice. Um, but by and large, I think it is an overreaction. I think that certainly the public school system needs to be, um, I don't know if modified is the right word, but there are issues in, in public school system that, that need to be addressed in the way that we in the way that we operate, we we probably do need to catch up. We're, we're probably still in a 20th century uh, framework, and maybe we do need to adjust in order to better prepare our students. But uh, but overall, I think that um, I do think that it's a quality education that the students are able to receive. From uh, from your standpoint, what are elaborate on some of those issues you just alluded to? What are specifically what are some of the issues that are facing our school systems? Well, I think that the what we talked about with uh, critical thinking skills, those kinds of of lessons are things that we need to teach our our young people and I think that too much of the time we get focused on teaching them for whatever test is coming up, there are tests um, all throughout grade school to the point where kids get so worked up they throw up before tests now. And we have North Carolina final exams and we have EOCs and we have test after test after test, which, again, accountability is not a bad thing. Um, but I've seen some of the formulas that they use at, to to calculate these adjusted scores and nobody – very few people, I think, can understand how those formulas work. And so I think moving beyond this test-driven education system and giving more, you know, if you if you hire me to be a teacher, then I want you to trust me to be a teacher. And, um, you know, I would expect the administration to come in and, and, and check up on me to see if I'm doing a good job so that we can teach our kids to be critical thinkers rather than test takers. What What do you say to, uh, for the record, just so it's clearly stated, I agree with everything you just said, but I'm going to play devil's advocate just for a minute. Okay. Um, what would you say to someone who would say, well, you know, Daniel, that's great, and we always hear about not teaching to the test, but you even said we need some accountability. So how do you have an empirical measure of accountability without having some sort of standardized testing how do you what's the what's the counter to that well i think uh, as i mentioned i think a good administration i think that's their responsibility i think they uh, are they should be visible in the classrooms um so that the teachers don't just get into a rut and sit behind their desks and show PowerPoints or give out worksheets or things like that. And there have been teachers. I had teachers like that when I was in high school. Okay. And and so I understand where these tests came from to make sure that students were getting, getting a fair um, education, the proper education that they're, they're promised in the North Carolina constitution. But, um, but I think that a good administrator paying attention to what the teachers are doing and holding the teachers accountable there. Uh, not that we should get rid of all testing. Uh, I don't, I don't think that's the answer, but we are, 
we are in a sea of it at this point. What did you make of the scandal in Atlanta that happened earlier this year about the administrators uh, basically falsifying the results of the state exams uh, because they had a pay incentive to meet? Right. And uh, what, did, what did you make of that as a teacher? Were you surprised that that, that goes on? I'm not surprised at all because of, of the stakes that are involved and in terms of what we have to do to raise graduation rates and what we have to do to meet all these certain standards so that we can get the funds that are out there from both the state and national uh, governments. And so you, you know, it's, it's government. Uh, There's a lot of politics involved. And so when that pressure is there, um, I can see where the temptation would come from. I heard something on NPR the other day. They said that nationally high school graduation rates are higher than they've ever been there. I think 81% was the figure that they quoted. Um, do you place a lot of confidence in the fact that that actually represents that 81% of the students are academically prepared to go on to the next thing, whatever that thing is? I don't. Um, I think that that number is inflated a little bit. I, I, we, we're in a really tough spot, I think, economically at mm-hmm. this point because I know that even when I was – and that's it's been a few years now. It's 19 years ago since I graduated high school, but – but but a generation ago or, or maybe even less, many of the students would graduate from high school and go work, like you mentioned, at the textiles um, and make a really good living. But those middle class jobs, and I don't mean to sound like Pat Buchanan here, but those jobs aren't here anymore. And so there's a there's we, we have this push where we try to uh, encourage more and more kids to go to four year universities where I'm not sure that that's necessarily the best track for them. Um and so it, it it really is a difficult spot, I think, of what jobs these these students who are graduating now, what are they going to be able to do? Do you feel as though um, is there too much of a push uh, to send to send students of all skill levels to four year universities? I do think so. Yeah, and and I think uh, you know. Cleveland Community College and other community colleges that that will equip students with good skills. Um, I think for too long we have somehow um, looked down as a society on 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 different levels of jobs. And you know, if if you're an electrician or a plumber or um, any of those kinds of technical jobs uh, where you have a skill, in, in many ways you're better suited uh, than someone graduating with a four-year degree at, at, in, in our current economy. And so I think that, I think that we should not uh, remove our focus on, on some of those, te- on that technical education, which Crest High School does a fantastic job in that area. Yes, they do. And I think Cleveland County in general, I think, I yeah. think you're exactly right about that. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the, one of the big divisive issues that sort of comes up quite a lot, and that is uh, teacher pay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this. Uh, some say teachers are underpaid. I think many would say that. Uh, others take exception with that. Where do you come down on this issue? I know it's a, it's something of a loaded question, seeing as how you are a teacher. But I am a teacher. What do you feel about this issue? Um, I I understand that I'm a 10-month employee, and so yesterday was my last day until August 14th. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. And so um, I am not one to complain an awful lot about the teacher salary scale because I do understand that I am only a 10-month employee. Um, it is – on the other hand, I do have my national boards and master's degree, and so I have uh, a, a significant increase in my pay 
from some first year teachers. If you're a first year teacher and you're making $30,000, that's in the gross column. Um, then it, that makes, makes it difficult to meet, to meet, uh, your needs sometimes. And so, but, but for my family, I, I'm a high school teacher. My wife adjuncts a little bit. She's an adjunct professor. Is adjuncts a word? Mm-hmm. Um, she's an adjunct professor at Gardner Webb. And so, um, we're able to get, able to get by on the salary that I make. But again, you know, if, if the state house wants to, uh, uh, give me a raise this year, I certainly won't protest. Is there a way now I want to ask you your opinion on this. There was a lot of uh, conversation on the, in the various election cycles and on NPR and everywhere else about the way that certain teachers did get a pay raise uh, last year, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you make of the way that they went about doing that? It seemed like it was a case of figures lie and liars figure where, depending on your perspective, it was either just a terrific accomplishment or a bait and switch. What did you think? I think the push was to keep uh, first year or early year teachers in the profession. And so the, the larger raises went to the to lower end of the scale. What I mean is the first five years of teaching experience got a higher level raise. Um, we all got a significant, a somewhat significant step in our pay, mm-hmm. but it is now on a five-year cycle. And so, whereas before the the economic meltdown happened, we would get you know a decent raise every single year. Now we have to work for have to. Now we we work for five years, and then we receive an increase in pay. That's the that's the McCrory plan that that came out. Um, I don't so I don't support even though in theory I understand it I don't necessarily support the the the, the ideas of paying teachers for uh, paying the better teachers as they would put it mm-hmm. um, just because I I don't know what the criteria uh, would be if it's going to be based on these test scores then um, I, I can't get behind that i've kind of always equated it and tell me if this is a i'm sure it's an imperfect analogy but tell me if you think this is in the ballpark i've sort of looked at it like uh like a college uh basketball coach uh there are 300 some odd uh schools that play division one basketball of those really there's only and this is being generous probably but there's really only 40 to 50 that if the stars align would have a legitimate opportunity even once every 10 years to compete for a national championship or even for a Final Four. And the other 300-some, I mean, the stars could align. They're not winning a national championship. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how do you measure coaching success? Well, what is success for John Calipari at University of Kentucky is much different than Tim Kraft at Gardner-Webb, right. you know. And I would argue that this year they were both very successful based on the. And so back to your point about what constitutes a good teacher. Well, if it's all about testing, right. the person who's teaching at Marvin Ridge – has an implicit advantage over the person who's teaching in West Mac. Sure. And that's just the reality of it. Is that a fair analogy? I think so, yeah. Okay, because it's about the resources you have on the front end. It, I, it has to be about this. Um, tell me then, if if you were sort of uh, czar of the teaching world, what system would you devise for trying to more fairly compensate you and your colleagues? How would you? What would be a good sort of solution in your mind? And again, I know that's something of a loaded question. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I've, I've thought about that, um, all that much. So, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't answer that. One. Tell me, uh, tell me about this. Let's talk about uh, retention of teachers um, from your sort of qualitative viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, do a lot of your young, talented colleagues? Do a lot of them? We always hear about them uh, leaving the profession. Is that a, a phenomenon that you've observed uh, personally? Uh, not so much uh, where we are. I know that a couple of them will move, but uh, we've got a couple 
that didn't stick around this year, but are moving to other schools in South Carolina and even other schools in the county. Um, but I think that we have a pretty good support system. Uh, we have a good mentoring program uh, at Crest High School and in Cleveland County Schools. And our administration is really supportive of the new teachers to make sure that uh, they're getting the resources that they need. And those those first couple of years can be difficult when you're trying to manage a classroom full of uh, 16-year-olds. Mm -hmm. um, that, that becomes somewhat of a challenge. Um, but by and large, uh, we have, you know, Kyle Lanning is – uh, going to stick around, I believe. Uh, I think he so, is. Yeah, he's uh, bow ties and all. He, that's right. He's he's got quite the beard going now too. So, uh, yeah. But I, I think our younger teachers receive a lot of support in our system, and so I think they're gonna they're gonna stick around. And and uh, you know they're supposed to be bumped up to thirty five thousand. That was the promise. We'll see if that uh, materializes with with the budget when it comes out. But uh, um, that's 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 a good incentive to. To, to keep those younger teachers around. If you had uh, if you had a, a student in your class, and let's say he's a senior and he comes to you and you're helping him with a letter of recommendation for college, mm -hmm. uh, and he says, uh, Mr. Thomas, I'm, I'm thinking about being a teacher, what do you say to that young man? I think it's a fantastic career. I really do. And I would, I would let him know that the pay is not going to be uh, maybe what he could earn in uh, another field, depending on what that field would be. Right. Um, but the hours are are great for me. Um, you know, we, we work from seven thirty till four ish. Um, but you know, the, the thing about being a, a teacher is that your job really never stops. Um, I don't necessarily work on lesson plans all of the time, or at least I'm not writing them out, but I'm, I'm constantly thinking and reflecting on what we did in class this day, or how can I reach this particular student with those lessons that we were talking about earlier? And I just think it's very rewarding. It, it really is. You don't, um, I, I like to, to clean my house or mow the grass because when I do that, I can see the results immediately. My, my floor was dirty. I sweep it. It's not dirty anymore, but in the classroom, it's not that way. You know, I don't see the light bulb go off in their uh, heads that often but when it does happen when that when that connection is made it is very rewarding and at the end of a semester when you've worked them really hard uh, and you get cards and letters or, or things like that from them where they say thanks you know thanks mr thomas whatever it really does make all of the struggle uh, worth it that's the uh, that's the positive aspect on the flip side have you ever had a day as i'm sure you probably have have mm -hmm. you ever had a day where you just felt like man i'm burnout maybe not burnout like tired on friday afternoon but I'm like, have you ever given serious thought to, man, is this really what I'm committed to doing with my career? There was a particular year uh, that I came home. I had a, a class, a very difficult class to manage, um, and I would come home and and I would be mad at my wife. I don't know why. Yeah. I thought it was her fault, but I would come home from school just still trying to unwind. And it took me a couple of weeks to realize that it was because of this fourth period, the end of the day class that I was having to manage. Um, that was a really tough year, um, for sure. Um, I, I, I have since learned that the way to be successful or at least to keep your sanity in education is to filter the, 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 
is to filter your viewpoint through the 99.5% of kids that are really good, solid people. Um, they may not all be the most intelligent, you know, they're varying levels there, but most of our students come in and they want to work. They want to do what they're supposed to do. They, they do have some kind of goal in mind and it's that 0.5%, which, you know, 0.5% of 1200 is still a, a decent amount of people running around. They can really ruin it. Um, f for you, if you, if you let it, if you let that negative having to always battle them and, you know, if you, if you filter your view of education through that very small percentage, it can, it can wear you down for sure. Let's talk about parent involvement. Uh, I get the impression as an outsider that parent involvement at Crest is very, very good. It is. Is that, would you say that's a fair observation? It is. Um, what, uh, what role, I assume the answer to this is obvious, but what role does that have in the success of your school? It's, I mean, it's, it's critical. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's fundamental, I think. And I think that starts very early on. You know, I think that uh, students whose, whose parents are involved, um, even just reading to them when they're, when they're younger, but, but being present and being their advocate to a certain extent, but, but maybe not overly so. Um, uh, and that those particular students are the ones who are, going to achieve the most success in terms of their high school career and, and go on to college in a lot of ways. So let's talk about athletics at Crest. Mm -hmm. uh, first from the, from the egghead standpoint, let me ask you this. Do you feel as though not a loaded question, just want to get your opinion. Do you feel as though athletics and academics are kept in appropriate equilibrium, equilibrium and balance at Crest? I do think so. Crest high school football is a real thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we uh, have a lot of support from the, from the County, from the community. Um, we've been good for a lot of years now, just won our fifth state championship. Um, but our administration does a really good job of making sure that those students know as well that just because they're star football players, it doesn't mean that they're above the rules. Um, there are perceptions from different people who would probably disagree with me. Um, but the athletic field is a really good place for students to learn the, the, the way that they are supposed to act and behave and how to, I mean, it's cliche, right? But it's, it's the teamwork. It's learning to depend on somebody else and they're depending on you. It's all those kinds of things that I think offer really valuable lessons for students that, that may not get it in the classroom. And hopefully it will translate into both areas. How do you account for it? Because uh, uh, football and baseball both come to mind as programs that have been extremely successful over a long period of time how do you account for this at a at a little school in boiling springs north carolina how do you account for this ongoing success that these uh, teams and programs seem to have yeah we we have a lot of really good athletes in this community for sure mm -hmm. um but starting you know in peewee football and and all that kind of stuff and and baseball the baseball programs uh that we have really good programs even with with soccer although we're not as as successful in the soccer area but maybe that's just started uh, but we do really have we have really good athletes and then fantastic coaches at the high school level. Uh, Mark Barnes uh, is leaving us, but uh, Will Clark is stepping in and, and Coach Hodge at the baseball program. Um, and basketball has been successful over the, the past couple of years as well. With um, So, yeah, I mean, good athletes and good programs and a lot of community support. It really is there. You know, it's, uh, um, you know, we, we have the, the Charger 
what are they called? I forget. I should know this. Uh, that the charger booster club that mm-hmm. meets the horseshoe club that meets at uh, the quick snack, you know, and I mean, that's been happening for years and, and up at the snack shop. And so there's a lot of investment into, into our athletic programs for sure. Talking about uh, the community, I want to ask you, and we, we talked about Roger Harris earlier, but I want to ask you about the uh, Board of Education in Cleveland County. Uh, what, what do you view, what should their, their core job be? What do they exist for? Well, I think that they, I mean, obviously they're providing local budgets and, and maintaining uh, the funding for, for local projects. But uh, I, I just think that, that they're perhaps the top level of of accountability. Mm-hmm. I think that accountability structure, I'm a, I'm a local guy. I don't know if that's come across, but I, I do believe in local control. That's kind of a loaded word these days. I don't mean to make myself into a Republican because that wouldn't be true either. But um, I do think that they do a really good job of supporting the district who then support the the local administration who then support the 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 faculty and staff and and that's the way that I think it should work and they're they're generally very positive about what's going on in Cleveland County Schools and I think they've I think they've hired a really good superintendent in Dr. Fisher um he is a fantastic leader something that I think that we uh we have needed. So you are uh, very confident then in the leadership that we see at, at our local schools. I, I am confident. Yes. Very good. Uh, tell us about, uh, from your standpoint, Cleveland Community College. Uh, tell us uh, what sort of resource uh, do you feel that is? Do you feel as though that's a community college that's well equipped to serve uh, students from Crest and other high schools in the area? I think so. I think it, they do a fantastic job. We have several teachers from the community college that come actually over to the campus at Crest and teach classes throughout the days, uh, dual enrollment courses, I believe Mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, so, so students are graduating with, you know, half of their first year, you know, college under their belts. And, um, so I do think that that is a a positive for our students, but, but then also that, that technical education, they can go on and get those degrees and and be positive contributing members of our, of our local economy. One more, uh, work related question, then we'll, uh, then we'll sort of, uh, digress into some other subjects. Uh, what sort of advice were you given when you first started out as a teacher? Uh, what sort of advice were you given? And then uh, the follow-up question to that is, what sort of advice do you give to younger teachers like Kyle Lanning mm-hmm. that, that start out at Crest New? Yeah, I think that you can't take yourself too seriously. You're not uh, um, the end-all, be-all of, of education. And so when you when you do and then you take – different behavior problems personally, then that really can, can wear on you. Um, but, but nowadays I, I, like I said earlier, I really have been impacted in seeing, uh, the, the good that's happening. You know, we have a lot of really solid students and a lot of really good things going on. And so if you can kind of stay away from getting bogged down with the, with the negatives of that are, that are present for sure on a daily basis, you never know what's going to happen on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but, um, being, being consistent, uh, with with discipline, reaching out. I mean, it all boils down in the end. I, I think, uh, I think being a successful teacher or perhaps a human being, it boils down to relationships. And mm-hmm. so, I, I try to offer my students respect. Even I don't make them earn it. I don't necessarily believe in that. I offer them respect. Perhaps they could lose it throughout the year, but uh, they seem to pick up on that. And if you can build a relationship with the students and and let them know that you really do, you really are invested in their education and their well-being, then even if they don't really care about, you know, what what role 
political parties play or, uh, you know, whether or not, um, you know, Jefferson or, or, or Hamilton was uh, correct. Uh, and, and they they still will learn that critical thinking and they'll begin to trust you a little bit. And so I really think those relationships are, are most important. Uh, also, we would be remiss speaking of all this stuff with Crest and academics and athletics if we did not uh, congratulate Bradley Keller and his family on uh, being drafted in the uh, amateur baseball draft earlier this week uh, for the major leagues, uh, drafted by the Atlanta Braves in the 15th round. So congratulations to him and best of luck as he goes off to Orlando, I believe. I believe he's going to be on the field later this afternoon. That's great. Uh, and uh, he's uh, he is sort of continuing a string of uh, excellent baseball talent that mm-hmm. you've had come through the school. And, of course, you have Matt Bridges, who's going off to play at East Carolina university this fall and so we certainly uh congratulate those guys uh on a, a outstanding season want to uh, switch gears here and ask you about a few uh different subjects uh i sort of uh hinted at this in kind of a uh, kind of a humorous sort of way on on the social media earlier this week mm-hmm. but you and i have often joked about would you ever consider running for town council i think that reason that question comes up because hey you've hinted at it mm-hmm because you're born and raised in this area, because you're obviously very connected in the school system, and because you're very passionate uh, about the community. As you said, you're a local guy, mm-hmm. and you love this community. Is that something that you would ever seriously consider running for uh, for town council, and perhaps a school board, or some sort of civic office like that? Well, this, I guess, is breaking news, but uh, I have uh, formed an exploratory committee. Uh, Micah Martin and Tyler Kettering are on my exploratory committee and helping to raise. It's it's going to be difficult. I believe the filing fee is $5, <laughs> and so I'm going to have to form a super PAC perhaps to uh, reach that level. Uh, official filing begins July 6th this year, uh, so I have researched when official filing begins. And this is for town council. This is for town council when the election will be this November, November of 2015, so – um, I am definitely considering uh, throwing my hat in the ring for. And what would your uh, and first of all, now I need to ask this. This is the most immediate follow up question, which is Tyler Kettering and Micah Martin, both of whom have appeared on this show before. That's correct. Who would be your your actual campaign manager between those two? Wow, between those two, I don't know if I can if I can uh, reveal uh, the inner workings of my campaign at this point. So you're not sure you're not prepared to comment on. I'm that. really not. Okay. Uh, what what is your platform if you do run? Well, I've got two reasons, I think, for considering it. One, I would really just like to see the bigger picture of how the town works mm-hmm. and uh, and try to uh, understand. Uh, like I said, I love Boiling Springs. And uh, so to understand how it really works. But then uh, as a proactive kind of, of, of thing, I, I would like to, to hear what the different uh, constituencies in the town, what they think and, and, and where they – come down on where Boiling Springs needs to go. Um, and and so I'd, I would want to maybe do a listening tour. Has that happened? Uh, um, what did John McCain have? I, I want to get one of those buses and drive around. On the Straight Talk Express. That's it, I the think. Straight Talk. I'm going to get on one of those buses and, and just drive around Boiling Springs and, and let people tell me things. I want to ask you then about a few issues uh, facing the town. Of course, these are all very serious. First of all, I'd love for you to comment on the new public parking signs that have uh, gone up. Uh, well, first, uh, there's one down by the playground uh, there behind the, the police station. There's also one uh, in between the Boiling springs museum and uh and the talk of the town salon uh nice blue sort of signs alerting folks that there's uh publicly available parking uh, where do you view this and the evolution of our town it's a really big step for us uh parking has been an issue for a long time and i'm glad to see the uh, leadership has finally stepped up and got us some blue signs 
And what would uh, what would you say to speaking of parking? And I asked Mike about this. In fact, I think he's contributing to the problem, and so you might have to sack him if he's on your campaign. He says that when people park at the post office in Boiling Springs, that they are obviously saying that they don't care how long they're there. Right. He's saying that if a person willingly parks their vehicle inside the little Boiling Springs post office parking area, that they are basically saying, I don't have anywhere to be for four hours. And so he says if someone's there and they're trying to get out, he never lets them out because they've made a conscious decision (laughs) that they have nowhere to go. Um, If you were uh, on the town council, would you say, could we maybe look at having a parking lot that works for the post office? I don't know. I think that's just a unique uh, beauty about Boiling Springs that, you know, if you're if you've got to mail a letter, you've got to be committed. And and I think that that shows a a commitment level from a Boiling Springs in that maybe other towns just don't have. I want to ask you this. Uh, John Blaylock, uh, our friend in common, he has always said as a Boiling Springs native that if he could change one thing about the town, he would say that all the power lines that are up and down Main Street, he thinks they're just a major eyesore. And he said, you know, why can't we get those things under the ground? I've, is that something you would support? I would. I think I would support that. I, I thought they were going to do that a couple are they of not? years ago. I, I don't know. Maybe that's they're still uh, out there. Maybe that's when the uh, maybe they'll get onto that when the bypass is done. I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, which, by the way, I drove on that bypass for the first time the other night. Uh, Paul Hemrick and I were trying to go to the Owls game. My God, I mean, you need a you need a, a Google Maps. There's yeah. no help to no. you on that thing. Uh, I heard Noel Manning told uh, me something that uh, Papa John's is coming to the old Crossroad office. Do you know this? We we need more pizza in this town. Comment on the on the restaurants of this town. Do we have too many fast food places? We do. That may be the reason why I would want to run for town council. I, I understand tax bases and how those things need to work, but uh, I have only been uh, to the Bojangles once, and that was uh, just because I had to. Um, I love Bojangles, but uh, we have Bojangles. We have Kentucky Fried Chicken. We got McDonald's. We got all the fast food. We got two dollar stores. Um, I would like to see a local economy grow up um, that that isn't based on national chains. Um, I like what we're doing at Gifted mm-hmm. uh, and the and what Mary's doing with the with the coffee shop. I look forward to trying their lunch out um, soon. Um, it, you know, it may end up costing a couple of dollars more than uh, a Big Mac that you could leave in your car for six months, and it still looks the same. Um, but uh, I think if we we could really focus on on developing somewhat of a of a more local economy, that that would benefit all of us. Yeah. How do you how do you go about uh, uh, doing that? I mean, how do you how do you launch some sort of grassroots campaign where you say, "Hey, guys, you might pay a buck fifty extra for lunch, but you're creating jobs in the local uh, economy." How do you do this? Yeah, I'm not sure because it's been tried and and it hasn't taken root at this point. Um, and so that would be something to uh, to try to to figure out, you know. But um, I, I just growing up, I just remember, you know, you had the you had the snack shop, which mm-hmm. is an institution in sure. itself. Um, and then, you know, beside that where uh, Giorgio's is now, or what is it, Uptown Pizza? What is it called? Campus Pizzeria. Yes, there we go. Uh, you see, I'm, I'm highly involved in Boiling Springs. That's why I'm running <laughs> for um, – and so, you know, it was just an old drugstore. You go in and Miss Virginia would give you a cherry soda, you know, and those kinds of things. That kind of local Americana feel, um, I'd like to see – I'd like to see a return to that kind of – are you atmosphere? Are you happy with the relationship uh, between the local community and Gardner Webb University? Do you feel as though it, it works the way it, it currently is constructed? I think so. On on all appearances, it seems like it it works. They support each other. Are you happy with the uh, level of involvement that Gardner Webb students have in the community? I am. Uh, I know. Again, not to to 
uh, inflate his uh, ego too much, but Mike has done a great job. He really has with, with getting those students involved, and and we we have a lot of friends uh, who are co- college students. Anna Colmar uh, has done great things as well, uh, and and about yeah, to be SGA president. She is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Um, wanted to ask you about a few other sort of uh, the town related issues. First of all, uh, and this is I'm going to ask this in a sensitive way because I know we have diverse listenership. Mm-hmm. An issue that. You know, if you go to Shelby, you go to Gaffney, you go to Forest City, you can you can uh, purchase an adult beverage if you're so inclined, either at a restaurant with your family or, or at a convenience store, where have you. Uh, do you feel as though, first of all, let me ask it in this context and then a separate one. First of all, as a just as a town resident and as someone who has a, a you know three decades worth of experience looking at uh, the Boiling Springs scene, do you feel as though that will ever happen in I, our town? I think so. I don't know when. I don't know what that timetable would be, but I think it could be. I think it could be good. So, likelihood percent likelihood of that happening in the next twenty years is what? Oh, I think in the next twenty years, then I would hope it would be a hundred percent. But what do you think it is in the next twenty years? Yes, I, I think it would be on the upper end. Okay, now I want to ask you this, and I this is my one gotcha question. Mm-hmm. I told Tracy I'd asked him one gotcha question, and he did a good job. He sort of skirted it, but I mean he's. He, He's the man. I mean, what can you say to him? Um, would you support this as a member of town council? Well, I I think I would. I would like to hear the the different sides. But in my opinion, um, you know, I just think if 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 Ingalls could could sell adult beverages, then perhaps they could have produce that was maybe a little bit better. You look at the Ingalls in Shelby on seventy four, and it seems to have higher quality seafood things. too. Yes, right and. Mm-hmm. I just envision parents coming in to Gardner Webb, and again, I don't know what Gardner Webb would think of this being a good Baptist institution, but um, parents coming in for a Saturday football game, and they could stop off at uh, Campus Pizzeria. Um, you got TVs up there streaming different games, you know, perhaps, and they could have a local beverage. Um, I could just see that being really good for our local economy. Yeah, and and could create jobs and uh, and and I've often said I think uh, well managed the right way could do a lot for the college community too. I, I mean, think so. as you mentioned too, and and even with things like you know tailgating before football mm-hmm. games and so forth. So that'll be an interesting conversation. Are there any other big changes you would like to personally see happen? I've asked you about a few. Are there any other things I'm leaving out that you would like to see happen, particularly if you do uh, make a run for town council? I'm not sure about any other big changes. That might be one the the previous question would be the uh, perhaps a, a, a focus but you know maybe a sidewalk that goes all the way to my house is that okay to do i i don't see any reason why not i mean i don't see a downside to it that's why you get in the government right that's right okay uh, patronage and and right. uh, you know for uh, for pork spending and so forth so um if you uh now if you do run first of all uh, just because i mean we're, we're fulfilling a dream right now to be able to ask this question well what is the likelihood that you will run there's all kinds of jokes you could make here based on current actual candidates for president. Right. right. You well, could say it's 99 percent likely. You could say I really want to run. I hope I run. I hope I'm a candidate. There's all kinds of things you could say. Yeah, I guess I'm maybe in that Jeb Bush kind of stance right now. Hope where you're a candidate. I might end up thinking that I perhaps will run. As if it's up to somebody else, perhaps. It, it might be. Yeah. I'll have to converse with Micah and Tyler and, and, and maybe talk to my family. Sarah Thomas says what on this subject? Well, you know, she understands the dangers of politics and how this may end up dragging my family through the mud. Uh, perhaps the Davidson question will come up. Yeah. Uh, but uh, 
so far she's she's in support. What will happen if uh, if someone goes through and and uh, tries to track down all the things that your father has said over his uh, campus police <laughs> career? How will you will you have to disown your father? I don't think so. I think that uh, he will be a political asset. <laughs> I think he will too. I think he will too. Well, listen, this has been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed it very very much. Uh, our guest has been Daniel Thomas, uh, who teaches social studies at Crest High School, has a number of interesting courses coming up, uh, it sounded like. And uh, really and truly, if you look at Broad River Community Church or any number of other ways, very, very involved in the community and hosting campfires at your house and so forth. That's correct. We're looking forward to the fall. Yes, absolutely. Well, listen, uh, this has been a pleasure. This has been another thrilling, scintillating edition of Saturday Morning with Shane McGrath. We are down to two shows. Gosh, I can't believe it. Time is ticking away. We'll have uh, one more of our usual format next week, which is, uh, uh, gosh, what is it? It is June the 20th next Saturday. And then uh, we're off the following week. And then July 4th, as I've been promoing for the last several weeks, ring in your 4th of July with us here live 9 to 11. And we'll have a special edition, a final edition of Saturday Morning with Shane McGrath that week in a little bit different format. Uh, to unveil for the final episode. So we've got four more hours of radio to do, and then we're out of here, Jack, as we uh, wrap this thing up with pink tissue paper and send it off to the broadcasting HOF as we always sign our publicity shots around here. Thank you for tuning in. Special shout-out to those of you on the TuneIn Radio podcast, available Monday. Thanks to our man Jeff Powell on SoundCloud and iTunes. We go out with the Beatles in my life, as always. If it's Saturday, it's Shane McGrath on your radio.
from London to Paris to Borneo. WGWG.org.